Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into the Otson Audible's podcast. It's a Monday. It's mailbag day. Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on today's show. Matt Prem. In sunny San Diego, which uh, I'm envious of, if you look out the window, it's uh, the sun will come out today in Eugene, but it hasn't yet. Um, but Matt will not be on this show. I think he'll return later in the week when we do a little bit of a review at the midpoint of the season now that Oregon's on its bye week. But as is the case every Monday, we're going to have some, uh, you guys sort of lead the show with some questions. We've got five questions today. I think at least three of them are this is your first time asking a question on the show. So congratulations. Thank you so much for listening and for feeling like you wanted to chime in. Um, let's start with a question from a first-time question asker at Tyler Warren 21 who asks, with Oregon's tough schedule that lies ahead, do you think it's possible for the Ducks to have their first undefeated regular season since 2010? Or is that just wishful thinking? Um, possible, yes. Wishful thinking, Yes, I think both of those can be true. Um, I certainly don't think it's impossible that they run the table. Um, I certainly think that's would not be what I expect the outcome to be, um, which I'm sure Duck fans would like me to come out here and, and slam the table and say, they're going to do it. This is the year. They're going to run the table. But as we even said, wrapping up uh, from Stanford Stadium on Saturday, like if Oregon or any of these teams do run the table and do traverse through this conference at, and, and finish 9-0, which would be the first since the question asked, as I said, 2010 Oregon, that would be incredibly impressive. And it would make that team, whoever that is, like one of the best teams this conference has ever had. Um, I'll, Jared, I'll toss it to you. I have some data to like suggest like, hey, maybe the odds are a little better than I thought it was before the season started. But um, do you have, do you differ at all on that? I mean, I think it's, I think you'd agree it's possible, but probably not the outcome you're expecting, or am I putting words in your mouth? No, it's, I mean, it's totally possible, but no team has ever gotten nine and zero in conference play. Like that's just how it's been. Um, and for as good as every team is this season in the PAC 12, like they all play each other. Like yeah. a loss is going to happen at some point, like whether it's Oregon losing or Washington or USC, like, the team is probably going to lose. And the, the if you're Oregon, the bad part is you do play Washington and USC. You get the best of every other team in the conference. So I don't anticipate it happening. It's certainly possible just because they're undefeated right now. And if they win all the remainder games, they will finish undefeated in conference play. But, you know, I had them going 10-2 and two at the beginning of the year. Uh, I still have that prediction. And there's a lot of really good football coming up, and there's a chance there's there's going to be many chances for for Oregon to win, and there's going to be many chances for them to lose. So, 
I think it's more wishful thinking than anything else. It's certainly possible, but I don't see it happening. The case for it, and again, I'm making the case, not that I necessarily believe this, but if you wanted to nitpick uh, resumes to this point, I think Oregon has probably had, of the contending group, if we're going to call it USC, Utah, Oregon, and well, Washington, obviously, and I guess we'll toss in Oregon State. Um, Oregon State has a loss already, so they kind of are on a, a step below, but that was impressive what they did against Utah. Utah obviously also has a loss. But I'm just going to include those groups because that was kind of the conceit as the five contenders coming into the season. Oregon has the best winning margin in conference play pretty significantly over Washington and USC. And those teams have basically all not played anyone considered good. Um, in fact, USC and Oregon have played two of the same teams so far, Colorado and Stanford. Oregon has an average win margin of 36. USC's is 22.3. Um, Washington's played... A couple of teams here that I think I think Arizona may be as you would I would argue is probably better than Colorado, but they didn't have their starting quarterback and they've won by an average of 18 points. So you could argue Oregon's been the most impressive team of this group so far. Um, ESPN actually, I was looking through their matchup predictor today, and they actually favor Oregon in every matchup the rest of the season, including a 55-45 favorite over Washington and Seattle next week. Kind of interesting. Um, I say all this to say, like, you can absolutely go into the stretch thinking it's possible. There's there's no reason not to. Um, but you also need to be re realistic here and say, Washington's really darn good. And we're going to spend, if you, if you don't want to listen to us talk about how good Washington is for 10 days, don't tune into our podcast. I, say, I know we're going to be talking about how dynamic this offense is for the next 10 days and probably a little bit more even on this podcast. Um, that's not going to be an easy game. Washington State is right in between two massive road games and they're playing quietly. I didn't even include them in this top five group. Maybe I should have. They're quietly and sneakily playing really, really good football and looking certainly like a team that can give any of these teams a tough out. And then Utah, I know they look terrible without their quarterback, but basically if you just put Cam Rising out there, it's a very much a different team. And then USC, we all know the story there and Oregon State at the end. These are all of these teams. Utah, Utah lost though. Sure. No, I didn't. I wasn't. I was just talking. I was running through this. Oh, just in general. Okay. I was just running through the schedule and just saying all these games. You could. I could see Oregon losing essentially any of these games because all these teams gotcha. are good. Two of them are on the road. It's it's positive that the last couple that you have are at home and that you finish with some home games there. But it's it's while ESPN would say, hey, Oregon's predicted based upon whatever metrics they're using to win all these games, and while you can point to the fact that, I, as I said, I think Oregon has performed just as well, if not better than any of them, especially if you look at the totality on both sides of the football of any of these contenders, you can certainly make that argument. I just think you have to realize that games aren't played on paper and that these games are going to be very, very difficult to win. And just because Oregon has outscored its first two conference foes, 42 to six in each game, they're about to face teams that are significantly better um, than what they've faced. Yeah, I... I just remind everybody of Arizona State in 2019, mm -hmm. where it seems like they are the proverbial favorite going into that, and then something happens where they lose. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, <clears throat> maybe even specifically against Arizona State this year. But yeah, you know, you this is why you play the game. I say that on every damn podcast because this is it's exactly that. It's like yeah, you could be, it, you know, it's like the Chiefs and the Jets last night. Like nobody expected that game yeah. to be close, and it was a three point victory. Like this is why you play the games like Oregon could throttle Washington next or two weeks from now. And it would be an incredibly surprising outcome. But again, that's why you play them. You don't exactly know what it's going to be. And for as much as ESPN's FBI is a pretty good barometer of what, um, what will actually come about. Um, again, that's through 20,000 simulations. So 20,000 times. It's Which been wrong that, before. <laughs> yeah, like when it's 55, 45, like that means a, <laughs> thousands of times Washington won, but just more thousands of times Oregon won. So it's going to be a great game. And I just don't think anybody this season even goes undefeated in conference play. It's incredibly difficult. And it's a reason why the Pac-12 hasn't had a college football playoff contender in a little bit is because of this damn nine-game conference schedule. Like, wouldn't mm -hmm. it be way easier to play UA, I don't know, University of Alabama, Monroe, like, in week 10? Like, that'd be cool. That'd be way easier than going 
back to back to back to back with Washington, Washington State, Utah, and then uh, USC. Like it'd be a lot cooler if it was just UAL in there. So, you know, thank you, Larry Scott. <laughs> yes. And as I said earlier, if some team does maneuver its way through this without losing, we could have a conversation about that being not just the best team clearly in Pac-12 history in terms of just this iteration with 12 teams, but going back, I don't know if you would actually be able to make that argument because there have been national champions that have come from this conference, obviously, but you could certainly throw their conference slate in there as the most impressive with, with all the wins that would need to take place to get there over. I mean, or, for Oregon to do it, they have to win five games going forward against ranked teams, which is not something you usually see in this conference. All right. Second one from at big underscore duck energy. Are there any areas you feel the duck defense hasn't really been tested yet? The starting D hasn't allowed a touchdown since Texas Tech, but some explosive offenses still loom on the schedule, and there's big challengers ahead. Hashtag odds and audibles. Thank you, Big Duck, for jumping in with the question. Um, I think he kind of laid it out there. Um, Oregon has played, like, I look at it this way. You look at the upcoming games and kind of what Oregon is prepared for. They've played a lot of pass-happy offenses, right? They've played Hawaii. They've played Colorado. They've played Texas Tech, which is probably ran the ball a little bit more than was anticipated and gave you a little bit more of what you might see against like a Utah or an Oregon State or a Cal. But the difference is the caliber of athlete at all, in, in all of these situations. Like Oregon just simply hasn't faced receivers as good as what they're going to face against Washington or against USC. They haven't faced quarterbacks as good as what they'll face against Washington, Washington State, and USC. Um, if you want to talk about the run game and the running backs they've faced, like sneakily, they kind of haven't played a good running back really at all yet, Jared. Like it's something I was kind of looking through here today and you know, Oregon's rush defense has been great, but opposing offenses have had more success with design quarterback keepers. And I think that's part because of maybe Oregon struggling to defend that, but also because they just haven't faced running backs that are any good. And they will get to a point in the season where they play Utah in Colorado, or sorry, in California in consecutive weeks, I think Cal's obviously have much, very much a winnable game, but Jade Knott is one of the better running backs in this conference. And then they end the season with Oregon State, which is, we saw what happened last year against that run offense. And Oregon State already had a hiccup against Washington State, but boy, watching them against the Utes, they just overpowered those guys and their running backs were, were I think, a big difference in that game. And obviously their defense against Utah, which looked pretty hapless without its quarterback. So my point is like they have faced now some attacks that are similar to what they've faced. So they've, they've kind of seen all of this. What they haven't seen are the types of players, the individual athletes they are going to face in these bigger matchups. And that's where you could say, hey, like, yeah, Oregon did great against Hawaii and Colorado, which probably have some similarities to Washington. But Michael Penix is not either of those teams and neither are any of those receivers. So, um, yeah, they've been tested, but they haven't been tested by the type of players they're going to be tested in the upcoming weeks. And that's the challenge. We're talking specific play styles. It's clearly like a run heavy offense. They just haven't played one of them yet yep. this year. And yep. Stanford was um, a little more run heavy than I originally anticipated. Um, well, I thought they would run the ball a lot, but I also thought that like they were, they were just a running more running than passing team. At least they had been in their tendencies and in, in, in games past, but like a team I don't know, like Utah, where they're going to run the ball more than they're going to throw on average. Or I don't even know. You can look at like one of the military schools and have like a whole like running back by by committee committee approach. Like they haven't played a team like that and or a team that just runs the ball like 60 to 65 percent of the time. Yep. And I'm not sure what that would look like because there's some success against the run. There's also not a lot of success against the run like. Their rush defense after, like against Tech specifically, after Shuck got his 58-yard touchdown, or not touchdown, 58-yard long run, like it was significantly better after that. Um, Stanford had a couple of decent gains on the ground this past weekend, like 12, 14 yards, but they never broke something out. It was never a long run. Like eventually one of the defensive backs got them. Like I think that's a a positive if you're Oregon. Like, yeah, there's some some eight to 12-yard gainers, but – you know, there's a safety coming. There's a cornerback coming off the edge. Like they're good at perimeter tackling, so it's not um, a huge 30, 40 yard chunk play. But to Eric's point, 
like, yeah, Oregon clearly hasn't played um, these good of caliber of players because they just haven't. Like, I think Shador Sanders is obviously the best quarterback they've played so far. Uh, they did very well against him. Colorado has a very mediocre offensive line, so that certainly helps when you don't have to have your secondary cover for as long as four or, sorry, like six or seven seconds. When you can get to the quarterback like that at ease, makes your life as a defensive coordinator, as a defensive player, a lot easier. Uh, Washington's offensive line is better. USC's offensive line is better. Like Washington State's offensive line is better. There's going to be time for these quarterbacks to step up into the pocket, find their receivers, and complete passes. And Oregon fans are going to very much need to accept that when it comes to playing Washington because that's all Washington does. Like, Washington is not going to run it. Like, I was talking about a run-heavy team. That is not Washington. They're going to throw it 40 to 48 times. They could throw it, like, 50 times if they really needed to in this game. And they just might, and I really wouldn't be surprised if they do. Um, but it, you know, it comes down to like can Oregon's guys match up with Washington guys, and they haven't played anybody like that. I think Texas Tech's receivers were probably the closest thing that they've played. Um, Colorado has some good receivers, but again, we're talking about three three receivers in Jalen Polk, Jalen McMillan, and Roma Dunze, who are likely day one, day two picks in the next year's NFL draft. Like Adunze and McMillan both have first round grades. Jalen Polk is slowly rising up because he's um, he's equaled their production basically this year and had moments last year where he was really good. So they just aren't going to see that. And they're probably not going to see that again unless they go play Ohio State in the college football playoffs or um, USC. I think their receivers are good, but I don't think they're as like top end as Washington's receivers. Right. So yeah, agreed. Like they're not going to see that again this year. And the only time they're going to see that again is when if one of the defensive backs plays in the NFL. So uh, in terms of facing that, it's gonna be it's gonna be next week, and it's never gonna happen again. But you'll see if they're up to the test. Uh, it's gonna be the biggest test for them, at least defensively, until they hit Washington State, and then they hit USC, and then they hit Utah. So um, it'll be a fun time for this defense to see if they're any good or not. I think they've proven already now through five weeks that this is a much improved defense. We talk about that a lot in the pod. Statistically, they rank near the top of the conference rankings in pretty much everything. Besides turnovers, forced is is kind of a little bit lower, but that's a lot of that's just kind of the way the game goes. There's going to be some tests here that really sort of show their metal, and I wouldn't be surprised right. if they have a performance or two in here that blows your mind because it's really that good against a great offense. But maybe also a matchup here or two where you go, ah, man. It just was just a tough day. And again, as we've said before, that doesn't have to be because Oregon's defense is bad. There's plays throughout football games where the offense just makes a great play. And again, to, to Jared's point about Washington, when you have that much NFL talent, those guys are going to have plays that they make where you just have to tip the cap and say, those guys are first round or second round picks for a reason. Um, so we'll see you next week. I'm absolutely excited. I'm so excited for this matchup for so many reasons. To see how Oregon's secondary, which has looked better just as a collective unit, than a secondary I can think of in, a, in quite a bit. Like 2019 is obviously the team we all talk about. And, and then there were some some groups back in like the 2013 to 15 range that had Efo and Terrence Mitchell, um, Troy Hill. Those are all NFL caliber corners. Two of those guys were still starting as of like the last year. I know Troy's still playing. So this group looks great. I'm really curious to see how they perform against this type of NFL talent at receiver. So big week coming ahead for sure for the second, uh, the secondary. Um, I should say big week, two weeks from now, because this week is by week. Um, all right. Third one from at Cascadian. What's the situation with Triquiz Bridges? We think he is starting at the beginning of the year and then only small sightings. Is he hurt? What's up? I thought at least he'd be contributing. Not hurt. First off, He's been available. He's been at every practice. He's played in all five games. Um, he's played 39 snaps in the two conference games, which is obviously nowhere near where he was a year ago when he was averaging like 40-something snaps, maybe maybe even a little bit more. I should probably pull that up. Um, but most of his snaps have come late in games, and most of his snaps have come after Kyrie Jackson, Julio Florence, Dante Manning, and Nico Reed have been on the field. So he's kind of like fifth on the pecking order right now, which certainly is surprising. Um, 
I thought Triquez had some really nice moments at the end of last year. I think both of us thought he was going to start this year as well. I thought it was telling to the point about like him being maybe fifth that Kyrie and Jaleel started against Stanford. And then Kyrie went out with an injury. Jaleel kind of disappeared during that same span. And it really was Dante Manning and Nico Reed for really the middle two quarters of the game until it got kind of ugly. And then, and then in came Bridges and some of the other guys. Like that was sort of interesting in terms of just the hierarchy here. We're starting to see kind of how everybody fits together. And it's pretty clear right now that the team just likes like four other guys more. Um, on this season, snap counts from PFF, Kyrie has 184, Nico Reed has 153, Florence 152, Manning 125, and Bridges has played um, 89 snaps. Um, we should note a lot of Reed snaps have been at slot corner while also on the field with Jackson and Florence, but Either way, he's getting out snapped pretty significantly by these guys. Yeah, it was surprising to see at the start of the season that Bridges was this far down in the depth chart. I had him as a starter, you know, opposite of Kyrie Jackson. Um, but you know, those projections come when you don't know what's going on, and I didn't know what was going on in practice because we didn't get to see um, how Oregon was lining up in their ones versus ones, which. It's fine. That 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 is what it is here, mm-hmm. and because of that, like I thought, Ky- I, excuse me, I thought Shrekwes would play because of his performances last season. He got better towards the end of the year. He's long. He's tall. He's fast. He has traits, excuse me, that you want in a cornerback. Julio Florence is just better. Dante Manning is just better. Nico Reed is just better. Like this is not a problem, and. No. I know people are asking about it because it's the same with Chris Hudson. Like this guy who played on a team last year that we all thought was disappointing going nine and three in conference play. Why aren't they playing more? Oh, geez. I don't know. It's because they added better players and players moved up past them on the depth chart and guys developed well under this coaching staff. And it's as simple as that. Like Dante Manning was barely playable last year, but he's done a pretty good job at points this season. Like there's been penalties and I know like there's been a couple like missed assignments with him, but against Stanford, I thought he was pretty good. And he played a lot of reps against Stanford. Mm-hmm. You got Nico Reed, who everybody said, why would we add this guy who played at Colorado last season? Well, sometimes a team is worse than just one individual player. He's been pretty good this year out of the slot. And I, I was surprised to see him play this often at outside cornerback, just because mm-hmm. I yeah. thought he would just be a slot guy. Um, he played good. He had a good pass breakup. He had a couple good tackles. Like, that's great from your third or fourth string cornerback. Like, and if you're Triquez, sometimes this just happens. Where, especially now in college football, and you, just, if you're if you're Dan, if you're Coach Dan Lanning, like you just want your team to be better. And if you think that adding these players can make you better, then you do it. And I think that's why Oregon went out and added. Um, a, a bunch of kids in the recruiting class at cornerback, and B, added two or three more kids in the in the transfer portal at cornerback. Like, he clearly thought there was an issue. Obviously, they lose Gonzalez, so you need to replace him, but he clearly thought that there was an issue, that he needed to bring in, like, five or six people into their cornerback room in order to figure out somebody who can play opposite of Kyrie or who the starters were. And I know that they lost other kids in the transfer portal from that cornerback room, but like there was a clear deficiency there and Dan wanted to address it. So um, I really like Triquez Bridges. Like he's a wonderful individual. I enjoy interviewing him all the time. Um, but this is sometimes this is just what happens. And last year, Dan had to make do with what he had. This past offseason didn't have to do that anymore. He could go get what he wanted in the portal or at least try to get what he wanted in the portal. And that's what he did. And Triquez just got passed up. And, happen. and by the way, it's logical that these guys all passed. If you just want to run through it on an individual basis, you go Kyrie Jackson, transfer player, hadn't been here before. You couldn't really compare TriQuest to him because you just haven't seen these guys compete against each other before. Same thing with Nico Reed. Um, Jaleel Florence, remember last year at the beginning of the year, they really kind of toyed with starting him or playing him big minutes over TriQuest and some of these guys. I just don't think he was ready. He's a true freshman. He takes that big step from his freshman year to his sophomore year. Clearly, there was a lot of development. He's playing at a much better level than he was a year ago. Makes sense like a guy like that jumps him. And then Dante Manning has been, how many years have been waiting for him to take a step, right? And sometimes it just, not everybody works on the same, I guess, uh, timetable for progress. 
And Manning has, to your point, Jared, played some of his best, probably his best football of his career over the last three or four weeks. And this was a guy who was a former five-star recruit, had all the talent on this podcast. We kept going, we think it could be the year. Is this the year? Well, maybe, maybe this is kind of the year. So um, all those make sense. And the good news is, is we know Kyrie might be dealing with some sort of an injury here. Obviously, that's bad news. But having this kind of a depth where a guy who started, what, a 10, 12, every game last year? I can't remember exactly what it was. Every game. Yeah. Having him come off the bench as like your fifth guy, if Jackson misses time, and obviously against Washington, you need all your all hands on deck, and you especially need your most talented players. But like throughout the course of the season, this kind of depth is really, really beneficial. And we saw it even on Saturday where you took Florence and Jackson off the field and Manning and Reed played just as well in terms of not giving up anything downfield. So, yeah, it's certainly not a bad thing by any means. And again, I think it's kind of logical just to look through it and say a couple of guys came in that are transfers that are just better. And a couple of players that were more highly regarded as recruits finally took that step and may have moved over the top of Triquez, who, as both of us have said, we still think is a caliber, a quality player. And, and PFF agrees. I know he's only played a, a, you know, a small number of stamps, but his PFF grade is still pretty close to what it was last year. I think it's about 70, which is, that's, hey, that's not a bad player grade. So, um, yeah, interesting question, though. I, I think it's fun this time of, this is kind of the time to, to chat about sort of some of these personnel questions that some people might have. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with the final two questions from today's Mailbag Podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Welcome back to the Ots and Audibles. We've got three questions down, two more to go. The first from another first-time question asker at need my whole name this year's group of transfers have been playing lights out so far obviously in 2022 getting nicks gonzo bucky etc was also a massive impact group how much of this transfer success can we expect to continue and how much of it is catching lightning in a bottle hashtag odds and audibles I guess you can never predict the future and maybe they'll just suddenly be terrible at picking and taking transfers. But I just went through it and looked at the last two cycles under Dan and we can quibble and we could run through this if we want. I have it as 19 hits, two misses and two unknowns. So they've taken 23 players and I think 19 of them are pretty clearly guys that have been really useful. Um, like 15 of them have been pretty much full-time starters. Um, the two unknowns are the two injured players who are just coming back now with Nishad and Justin. Um, Nishad, we should note, did get his, his first action in the fourth quarter at, at Stanford on Saturday. Um, obviously can't really draw too much from it. It was like a handful of snaps against backups. But it's really clear they're good at this. And Dan even kind of, I can't remember, was it Monday of this last week where Dan kind of touted a little bit of sort of the success they've had through the portal and kind of acknowledged, yeah, we've done we've done pretty good. They have. Like, I mean, you go through this. These are the I guess I'll run through this, Jared. And you can let me know if you want to quibble on any of these designations. Yeah, can I just can I just but, know the the misses? Yeah, I have the two misses right now is just Caleb Chapman and and I might be even premature on this one, uh Junior Angilau. But that's just because he has not performed at all and he was a guy you brought in and thought might. Um I didn't know exactly what to do with Connor Soley, but I don't think he's a miss because he's still been like a valuable contributor. If you wanted to tell me he's in the misses category because he's not like a huge contributor, fine. Yeah, I, I mean, think that's, we I think that's about right. We didn't expect them to be a huge contributor. Exactly. And for yeah. for Angela, like, so? Yeah. We still have Marcus Harper and Stephen Jones. Like, there's a chance he never would have contributed in the way that he's 
that he what some of us expected him to in the first place. Like they're still fine at guard, and you still have Struther. Like I think those guys were primarily just kind of backup plans more than anything else. So I don't think it's necessarily a miss. Um, Caleb Chapman, sure, it was a complete flyer though. Like I I, I can't say he was um, I can't say he was a hit, but you know it's a guy who incredible injury history, but just maybe if he's right, then he, we can get him on the field and play him. But you know he only had like. I don't even know. It was like 18 or 21 career receptions going in. So it's not like he was a star player in his four or five years at AM. He just he just needed a new home and Oregon said, well, we could use the depth. So come out and play when we're attempting a Hail Mary because you're tall. Yeah. And and to be clear, like I don't think these are like terrible outcomes for either of these players. It's just you can't really call either of them hits because neither of them are going to contribute, it seems like. Regardless, like it speaks for itself. So if we can quibble and we can say like 19 hits, two guys that were that didn't pan out, but they were both kind of quasi ads for depth pieces. However you want to frame it, like whatever, however you want to frame it, they've they've nailed these picks. So my answer to this question here is, I think you can expect this to continue. The track record through two seasons is like pretty much. I mean, 19 of 23 guys to me have like clearly been big contributors who've. And 15 of them have basically been full full time starters. Like, come on, that's 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 really really impressive. I, I would like to match that up. It'd be fun to look across the country and see how that would stack up with other um, transfer classes, um, just to see what a comparable rate would be. But like, I mean, here here are the names that I have in the hit list. Maybe people don't remember everybody who was in 2022, but just to give you a sense of like, think about how important all these players are. Casey Rogers, one of your best defensive linemen. Bucky Irving and Noah Whittington speaks for themselves. Jordan Riley, like, didn't kind of quietly started basically every game last year and then got drafted. Christian Gonzalez speaks for itself. Taki Taimani, Bo Nix, Chase Coda, like, all those guys are are big time contributors. Obviously, but I should have listed Bo at the very top. I did it based upon the order of when they um, committed in the in the transfer list. So, um, but like, those like, that's eight really really good players. You know, six of which, or five, sorry, five of which are still major contributors on this year's team. And then in 23, and again, I'm just going down the order of where they're listed on the transfer portal uh, list on 24-7. Nico Reed, Gary Bryant Jr., Casey Kelly, Tysheen Johnson, Jordan Burge, Evan Williams, Tez Johnson, Johnny Cornelius, Kyrie Jackson, Treshawn Holden, Connor Soley. Like, that's a bunch of guys that are playing really big minutes and have been pretty darn impactful in a positive way throughout. So, yeah, like, to the question... I thought it was worthwhile. This is the right time of year to, to kind of do this and kind of make some assessments. Like, yeah, they basically hit all their guys a year ago. And it sort of looks like right now they've hit basically everybody in this cycle. And we still don't know exactly how much Nashad and Justin can help. I think Jacobs is the player you would expect to have more of an impact just based upon the position he plays and what we have in front of him. Even if those guys aren't massive hits, it's still a really successful cycle. Yeah, I kind of want to know, like, for the for the question asker at need my whole name if you're listening, what like why was why did you think it was lightning in a bottle? Like if any if any t- side of recruiting is lightning in the bottle, it's high school prospects because you just don't know how they're going to measure uh, at the college game. But for the most part in the transfer portal, you have film of them playing, hopefully power five competition. Um, if you're a guy like a Johnny, like you look more at technique, but you have real game film against real opponents at the collegiate level. So Dan and his and his staff have just done a good job of recognizing talent and maybe um, recognizing underutilized talent like a Kyrie Jackson or Connor Soley, who, yeah, it doesn't play a lot. But when he's out there on the field, he's pretty productive and he's a good he's like a fifth or sixth string linebacker like Bryce Betcher has passed him. Like, that's fine. That's OK. You need depth. We talked all last season about, hey, there's not much depth here. If a player is underperforming, it's not like you can just go to the bench and pick up the third string guy and feel comfortable about it last year. Now, yeah, there's a lot more depth on on Oregon's defense and their offense as well. Like They just have done a very good job of evaluating talent in the transfer portal, um, evaluating positions of need in the transfer portal, taking advantage of guys who maybe were underutilized, who uh, were a little farther down on the on the on the rankings list, but also going out and getting top dogs like Jordan Birch. Like that was 
the biggest position of need was Oregon's uh, defensive line and guys who could rush the passer. So what they do, they go out and get the best defensive end in the transfer portal in Jordan Birch. And, you know, for, for some who thought that Mateo and Birch were on equal footing, which they never were, Birch is now putting up some real stats. He had two sacks against Colorado, really just one. Like, I don't, they, they gave the other one to him, but you'll take it as counting stats. He had two sacks against Colorado. He had two, two more tackles for loss and six tackles in total against Stanford. Like, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. Like, that's a real impact addition. And he's only going to have more opportunities to cause havoc in the, in the backfield. So I don't think any of this is lightning in the bottle. Um, I don't, I don't think it ever was. Uh, I think that's more of like on the recruiting side with a guy like like a Tatum Tuioti, where yeah. he's maybe a little underranked, or Ayapani Lalu, like Pancho. Like you don't really you don't really know what they're going to be like in college until they get here, and then you have a good idea of like okay, they need to work on this, or it's like oh, they could actually help us right away, and that's lightning in a bottle like this. These some of these guys were proven known entities at the school they were before. And are just doing that again, but under the University of Oregon. So, um, like Eric went through, like there's a lot of hits, and even their misses are they're they're not important. Like no disrespect to Junior Angelau or Caleb Chapman, but if Oregon were to have missed on Jordan Birch and he was what the South Carolina board was saying and just a complete slouch and didn't, wasn't actually any good and that they were going to be better off without him. And all of those things were true. Then yeah, that would be a huge miss, but there's, there's really no like obvious, like, wow, this was a really poor decision by Dan and company to add all of these transfer portal additions, except for maybe the special teamers, but they weren't on scholarship. So we don't talk about them. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say I didn't include Andrew Boyle. I didn't include um, Adam Barry. Um, I didn't include uh, a couple of other guys, but Alex Bales. I, Alex Bales, that's another name. No, and I think the, the, the one point, I guess Matthew Rigney this year too, he's already gone. Um, I think that point, you, you said something a couple of times that was interesting, which is the prep recruiting versus the portal recruiting. And you see why some schools are going heavier portal. I don't think the hit rate is maybe 90% at most schools, but even if it's 80%, it's a heck of a lot more than it is yeah, no, at a prep recruit. Really you know? <laughs> yeah. Like go. So for those listening, I'll have my, how Oregon players fared in the transfer or from, from the transfer portal this week or today, like go, go look at how much these guys are not playing. Mm-hmm. Everybody wanted Keith Brown to be in the locker room. And this, again, there's no disrespect to Keith Brown, but, you know, he was a clear, he clearly didn't fit in this Oregon defense under Dan Lanning and still isn't playing at Louisville. Like, I don't think he played last week. I haven't checked how he did this week because I haven't done the article yet, but I think he only has one or two tackles on the season. Like that's one or two tackles more than Justin Jacobs and Justin Jacobs hasn't played at all this year. Like, these are the things where I I will when when if Dan goes and gets an unknown recruit or an unknown transfer portal player at this point I will put my confidence in Dan and the, his staff to that whoever they thought was good enough to play here at Oregon probably is because so far the guys that have left the program and that they've added have or excuse me the guys who have left the program haven't seen a significant increase in like playing time and stat production. Well, guys that they have had enter the program have really flourished and done a very good job here. So I'll, I will put blind faith in, in their staff for now because of these hits and because of the guys who thought were hits from the recruiting cycles from years ago that turned out to not be big hits. Yeah. No, there's a ton of benefit in the portal era of, of just focusing on those guys because, as as Jared said a second ago, and it's a good point, you have an assessment of what these guys are both on the field but also like in a locker room. What's their work ethic like? Mm-hmm. Are they committed to it? Are they passionate about football? We were just talking about this on our eight-hour drive back from Stanford of like Jaleel Tucker was a good example. He was a top 140 recruit who originally committed to San Diego State and I think just popped up at what, like Mesa I don't even know like what yeah, college exactly it was. Arizona, college. Mesa, community college, something like that. It was weird. 
and he's like barely playing there and you just go and I don't want to speak for him in specific but we were kind of like you know maybe you get to a certain point with some of these guys and it's like they're really gifted physically but do they love football are they going to commit the time and the need you know and the effort to get there and with these portal guys because of what they've shown in the college system they've shown that they love being college football players and that they're committed to being the best um, possible because they've done it frankly at their own at old schools so yeah, there's a reason why certain schools are moving towards even more heavy portal. And if I'm Oregon, not that you're ever going to abandon ship on the prep stuff because you can have a ton of success there. And it's great to have a guy like hypothetically Mateo Uyunglele for all three of his college seasons here rather than grabbing him for one year after he started somewhere else right. or something. But you can see why if you cast a big net here with these portal guys and they've taken, what, nine one class, 14 the next, like I wouldn't be surprised if they take 16 or 17 next year if there is a possibility of, of, of improving there they might not need to the roster might be better where they mm -hmm. don't have to but there's with what they've proven to jared's point i think you kind of have to have some blind faith that that it'll work out all right final question from at hodges underscore ryan we're talking special teams his question thoughts on special teams play so far versus last year feels like a stark contrast already hashtag thoughts and audibles it feels that way ryan because at least through five games, it has been. Um, I went and pulled up the comparative numbers for um, 2022 and 2023. Uh, we'll start with just the pro football focus special teams grade, which um, I don't know how much stock people want to put into that, but I'll just mention it because it is a, a metric that we had access to. 2023, 79.2. 2022, 70.4. And if you are unfamiliar with PFF, an 8.8 .8 improvement is very significant. That's not like that's just a small tweak here or there. That means that there have been significant changes. If you run through the counting stats, they're better at everything but one. Uh, punting, and I want to spend significant time talking about this because I think Ross James has been quietly really great. Oregon this year is leading the Pac-12 in punting average right now, 47.6 per punt. Last year, they were last, 37.8. That's a 10 yards per punt difference. Think about the impact that has over a game in a game. And of course, Oregon's rarely punting. I think they punted like 11 times all season, like two per game. Doesn't necessarily matter a ton, but if they get to a game where they have to punt a lot, that's a pretty big difference. Punt coverage is better. It was 13.1, uh, sorry, 15.7 a year ago. Now it's 13.1. Uh, punt returns, they've averaged 8.3 yards per return this year. Last year it was 4.9. Kickoff coverage, uh, last year, they were allowing 25.2 yards per kickoff return, which is just crazy to say out loud. This year, it's 18.5. Kickoff return, this is the one where there hasn't been an improvement. They were 18.9 a year ago. Now they're at 15.2. And then I thought this is pretty significant. Touchback rate, and it's two different people holding the jobs, basically, because Boyle has not really – he hasn't played this year, and he was the guy last year. He was It was 64% touchback a year ago, 82% this year with Camden Lewis, who's been really, really good in that area. Aside from this last week, we put a couple out of bounds, which was not great. But reading through all that, it's pretty easy to say, like, yeah, aside from their kick return, which I think is really kind of just like, I don't know. Like, I don't really know if I care if you're good at kick return at this point, just because so rarely does that change a game now with the way the rules work. If you can just take it at the 25, you probably just take it at the 25 unless it's a terrible kick. Mm -hmm. That's all pretty dang encouraging. Like, I don't really think there's a whole lot to nitpick at other than Camden's performance this last week. Well, there was a block punt. That is true. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do well. Doesn't sh shouldn't show up in these stats. Um, yeah, they've been very good to start this year. There's, you know, there's, there's still room for improvement, which is great. Um, I think Ross James has been uh, very good at punting this year. The one issue he has is his hang time isn't, isn't great. And we saw that against Texas Tech. The longest return Oregon has allowed this year it was a booming punt by Ross James. But because of the lack of hang time, it just got to the guy faster. He literally outkicked his coverage, which sometimes happens, and that's yeah. fine. But, um, you know, the block punt, Camden missing a field goal against Stanford um, after two attempts, uh, the kickoffs out of bounds, like um, Luke Dunn's below average kick against Texas Tech. Like there have been things that they can clean up on. But there are a lot of positives to look at with the special teams unit. Obviously, the fake punt is probably the highlight of uh, the season, at least on special teams. It probably will be. I, I don't know. Like, you know, there could be a game-winning field goal. But 
you know, hard to beat a fake punt where Casey Rogers is the guy who's um, getting the first down there. But yeah, Ross James has been great, um, especially compared to last year. It, it was just, uh, as fans know, it was a real punting struggle last year for Oregon special teams. Um, kicking was fine with Camden, but Camden's been, I think, better this year as a kicker, um, both on kickoffs, obviously with the touchbacks and B with actual field goals. I know he just missed one. I was just talking about that, but uh, I think his leg is much stronger. I think he's just a better overall field goal kicker this year than compared to last season. Um, he steps into it better. He's got better distance. He's got um, it, it when he kicks it, it's no longer like a. How do I say this? It's no longer like a fluttering in your heart where you're like, I don't know. And it hasn't been like that for a while. But this year he's been sure about it to the point where when he misses, it's like, holy cow, he just missed. I can't believe that, Um, which was exactly what it was against Stanford. So I think there's a lot of positives at the top. There's still plenty of things that they can clean up on. And I know that Joe Lorig and Dan Lanning can see that. If I can see that. They can definitely see that, and they definitely have more things that they'd like to clean up on as well. But, um, you know, Oregon on the punt blocking side of the ball has come really close. Kenyon Sadiq did get a punt block against Colorado. Um, He was close like once, like a halftime really, against Stanford. Uh, I think it's really interesting that they have – Kenyon Sadiq on punt block. I didn't think that that would be like his biggest role this season, but it is, and he's doing very well at it. Um, and I think that the overall, like the the kick return unit, or not the return unit, the kick coverage unit and the punt coverage unit have been much better. They've they've been able to put Kamari Terrell as like that gunner and Connor Soley, who we talked about not having a big role at linebacker. Well, he has a big role in special teams. He's their gunner. He's right next to Camden on every single snap. Him or Tyler Turner, fun fact. And they do a great job. And Bryce Petcher's down there. They do a great job of getting to whoever is receiving the ball and trying to put a hit on them immediately or trying to wrap them up and then gang tackle to get them down. I think they've done a much better job of that this year. And I think it reflects in basically every single game at this point where um, – you're not kind of holding your breath every time somebody lines up to for kickoff, lines up for a field goal, lines up for a punt, and lines up for a, a, a punt block. Like you feel better about your chances. I don't even think we talked about, or did we talk about Tez and his return game? Not really. I ran through the punt return stats being significantly yeah, better Tez, than a year ago. Tez is significantly better than anybody Oregon had last season returning punts. And even though he dropped one and it fell out of bounds, and Dan kind of yelled at him for that like he's fun man there's a chance he could take one to the house i feel like there's people on this year's roster including gary brown jr who when they have the ball in their hands you're like wow they there's a chance they could take this to the house i I didn't feel like there was that last season and you know gary Bryant almost broke one free against colorado i think it was opening kickoff where he spun around and got an extra 10, 15 yards. And if he just made one more guy miss, it would have been another 10 to 15 yards. Tez Johnson is really squirrely back there. Difficult to bring down one of the fastest guys in the team. So I just think it's a complete overhaul of what last year's team was. Dan added all these kids through the transfer portal. Again, hits. And you could see the results every single game now. Maybe Ross James needs to be mentioned as a hit. I know he's a junior college transfer, but um, sure. I just want—I just wanted to run through this quickly. Nine punts this year, fifty-two yard average. Last year, eight punts, forty-one point nine. So that's a ten-yard improvement. A year ago, he was also kind of looking over his shoulder when he had the job, and then of course he didn't even start the year with the job, and he, I think twice kind of won it and lost it. Doesn't look like somebody who's going to give up the job right now. Now I don't want to jinx him. I'm going to knock on wood here. Luke Dunn has not performed quite as well on the field, but in practice and Jared's watched more closely than I Luke's looked great. And probably even maybe Ross is equal at times, maybe even better at others. Um, but I just think James has been really consistent so far. Again, 52 yards per punt, four of the five games with an average over 50 yards. Um, five of his nine punts have gone for more than 50, including punts of 58, 63 and 57. He's had a punt over 50 yards in all five games. Like that's, that's pretty darn good. You know, it's again, small sample size. We'll see how the rest of the year goes, but he hasn't had, again, knocking on wood, 
that one where he shanks it off the side of his foot and it goes like 32 yards, which felt like it was every third punt last year, not just from him, but just from all the punters. It's just, an, it's nice to see. It's been good to see them find somebody who's been consistent back there and who has the leg to turn the field like that. Um, I don't know. There's not much else probably to say on Ross, but aside from him not being able to get a good pass on a two-point conversion that failed against Colorado, there's really not much to gripe about with Ross James playing really well right now. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything else to talk about, Jared, unless you had any parting thoughts from Stanford week or anything to talk about going into Washington. Um. I don't have too much. I just want to say that I, I really enjoy Stanford Stadium. I think it's a great venue to watch a football game. And while there was nobody in the stands, even though they said we, there was 32,000 people there, um, it's a great place. If you haven't gone and watched a football game at Stanford Stadium, well, now you have no reason to. But if you ever just want to have a good time with you and 17 of your closest friends in an entire football stadium alone, go to Stanford Stadium. It's one of my favorite venues in the Pac-12. Yeah. I will miss these trips. This is it's a good that's actually a good point because this is the first conference trip that we've made and all of these are basically uh swan song trips. So I this was I think my fifth or sixth time at Stanford Stadium. I'm I'm with Jared. Ten years ago when both teams were really good, the atmosphere was awesome. Now it's just a really great stadium without much of an atmosphere. That's just a part of what's happened with Stanford's program not being what it was. Um it's, you know, Oregon will continue to play at Washington, so that won't be one. But Salt Lake City has, has been my favorite trip to make. That's going to be tough that that's the final time down there. Um, Tempe, probably not going to be quite as sad to not return there. Not that that's a bad stadium. It just hasn't made quite the same impact a place like Salt Lake City or Stanford have over the years. So I'm going to miss going to Phoenix rather True. than like Bloomington, Indiana. No disrespect, Indiana, but. Especially in mid-November, yes. It's a little bit nicer to go to Phoenix or Tempe uh, than yeah. that. But, uh, yeah, go to Stanford Stadium. You and 17 are your closest friends. It'll be a good time. Beers are right. way too expensive there, though. <laughs> On that note, we are going to wrap up this episode of the Odds and Audibles podcast. Um, Matt will be back later this week. I think we're going to have a podcast either on Wednesday or Thursday, um, recapping some things, looking ahead. Jared will update us on where we stand with the stock game. That and more later this week. And then next week, it'll be Husky Hate Week. Start of that, we'll be back to our normal programming schedule. So for Jared Mack, this is Eric Scopel signing off from the Yachts and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets.